Q&A is brought to you in part by Ricochet.com. Go to Ricochet.com slash QA to become a member today and claim your first 30 days for free. Ricochet.com slash QA. Ricochet.com slash QA. Hello and welcome to Q&A. I'm Jay Nordlinger. And this podcast is brought to you by The Great Courses and SaneBox. More about them later in the program. Our guest is Toby Young, the British journalist and personality. He's an editor on The Spectator. He's a blogger for The Telegraph. He's the author of several books, including, get this, How to Lose Friends and Alienate People. He was a judge on the TV show Top Chef. He's been a restaurant critic. He's an important, and I do mean important, education reformer in the UK. He is a founder of several free schools, and we'll learn more about that term later. Toby, I'm glad to meet you, and thanks for coming on. Well, thank you, Jay. You've had an election in Britain, a party election. Jeremy Corbyn has been named leader of the Labour Party. Tell us who he is. Is he an old-fashioned British patriotic socialist, or is he something new, something on the other side of the civilizational divide, as I like to say? Yes, I think he is, um, in some respects, something new, in that he's an old-fashioned socialist, but he doesn't appear to be very patriotic. Um, Yesterday, for instance, at a service to commemorate the pilots who had died during the Battle of Britain. Um, he refused to sing the national anthem. Um, and uh, that, 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 that made the front page of virtually every paper in Britain this morning. Um, he has also described uh, Hamas and Hezbollah as his friends. Um, he invited uh, representatives of the political wing, the leaders of the political wing of the Irish Republican Army, uh, to the House of Commons less than two weeks after the IRA had almost uh, assassinated Margaret Thatcher in a terrorist bomb during a Conservative Party conference. Um, he wants to unilaterally give up Britain's independent nuclear deterrent. He wants to uh, remove Britain from NATO. Um, he's a patron of an organization called uh, the Stop the War Coalition, which is uh, not quite uh, a cheerleader for ISIS, but um, uh, could certainly be described as an apologist for ISIS. Mm. So, no, it would be a stretch, I think, to call him a patriot. He is um, uh, a, a hard left socialist, uh, an unreconstructed Marxist. Um, and he's been on Labour's backbenches for most of his parliamentary career. He's been an MP, a member of parliament since 1983. He is, I think, the most rebellious of, uh, every, uh, of all the Labour members of Parliament. He has rebelled against the party whip, voted against his own party more often than any other member of Parliament, um, which makes him an unusual leader. Um, he was, um, uh, every time there's a leadership election within the Labour Party, the hard left, uh, which is really just a rump within the Parliamentary Labour Party, puts up a candidate. It's put up two candidates uh, before him in the previous two 
leadership elections. And really, it was a case of Buggins' turn. And he was put up in spite of being 66, bearded, a bicycling vegetarian um, who's, uh, who has a passion for photographing manhole covers. I mean, not your typical party <laughs> leader in the media age. And by some extraordinary twist of fate, he, he, he actually won uh, and won by a considerable margin, beating three other apparently much more suitable uh, candidates. And now he is the leader of the second largest political party in Britain. I mean, it is an extraordinary turn of events. And his first four days, he, he, he was elected uh, around noon on Saturday. Um, uh, and um, his victory speech was pretty shambolic. Um, he has re- he was due to give a, a major television interview on Sunday morning uh, and pulled out of it. And then a second major radio interview on Monday morning, he pulled out of that. Yesterday, as the BBC tried to interview him, he was getting out of his car. There was an altercation with a BBC cameraman who was thrown to the ground and hospitalised. So he's not very media friendly. Um, and uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, his, his first four days have been sort of comically disastrous. Um, and I actually envy uh, a, there must be some um, uh, uh, a journalist, I imagine, inside the Corbyn camp who is going to produce a masterly comic non-fiction account of Corbyn's sort of 18 months. I can't imagine he'll last more than 18 months, if that. I don't think he'll be leading the Labour Party at the next general election, which is in 2020. But suddenly British politics has kind of exploded into this kind of wonderful kind of comic farce with this kind of ancient unreconstructed Marxist leading the second largest party in the country. And it's just been kind of, you know, um, it's been heaven um, for, for journalists. Mm. But of course, it's yes. slightly no, it's, it's also slightly worrying just in, in case, you know, uh, the uh, uh, the rumbling economic crisis in China explodes yeah. and brings about global contagion and creates kind of a massive spike in youth unemployment in Britain, our economy re- goes into recession. It's just conceivable if there was a kind of perfect storm of disasters that that Jeremy Corbyn could end up as the next Prime Minister of uh, Great Britain and Northern Ireland. But I'm I'm relaxed enough to find the whole thing bloody amusing at this point. Very well put. Very. Let's turn to the Prime Minister, David Cameron. And let me just give you a few seconds on my experience with Cameron. See if it chimes with yours or not. I was never, looking from over here in America, I was never a Cameroon. I was for the other David in that leadership contest. I was sorry that Cameron won. I think I might have preferred Blair in certain respects, right-winger though I am. And so this is how I started with him. And then I watched him act as prime minister, watched him fairly closely for five years. And I grew to admire him. I was impressed by him. And I was rooting for his re-election, or for a conservative victory, very hard. I am something of a latter-day Cameroon. Does this make sense to you, and what is your own feeling or stance? Yes, I I think that broadly um, captures uh, my own journey as well. Um, He's not a movement conservative. Um, He is a a pragmatic conservative. Um, Morris Cowling. Uh, the late uh, uh, legendary uh, tutor, uh, historian at uh, Peterhouse College, which, was, which, which had produced a number of prominent um, conservative thinkers, used to ask his undergraduates whether they were conservative because they believed in conservatism or because they believed in nothing. And um, Cameron, I think, uh, 
if anything, falls into the latter category. Um, uh, but that makes him a pretty effective prime minister. Um, he's uh, a Burkean, if you will, rather than a Hayekian. Yes. Um, and um, he, uh, he's, he's quite shrewd. He, he, his judgment's pretty sound. Um, he appears to have made all the right political calls on the big issues um, since uh, becoming prime minister in 2010. Um, uh, I think... Uh, uh, a lot of people have changed their mind about him since he won an overall majority earlier this year. Um, uh, he didn't win a majority in 2010, and that was thought to have been um, a missed opportunity because uh, that was at the tail end of 13 years of uh, the Labour Party being in power. And Tony Blair, who was a very effective Labour leader around prime minister, was replaced by Gordon Brown, his chancellor in um, uh, uh, 2007, he was much less effective. Um, uh, the economy was in trouble. Unemployment was climbing. Uh, so uh, everyone expected Cameron to win uh, a, a comfortable majority in 2010. And when he didn't, I think a lot of people became a little bit disillusioned. But I think he's now restored people's faith in him since winning an overall majority. And he's the first Conservative leader to do that uh, since John Major in 1992. Mm. Um, and in spite of having quite a small majority um, uh, of less than 20. Um, he, he has uh, done quite well uh, since May. Um, he's tried to redefine the Conservative Party as a one-nation party, as the party of the working man. They've introduced an increased uh, living wage uh, and done a number of other things to try and reposition the party on the centre ground. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's, um, that seems particularly sensible in light of the Labour Party's decision to lurch um, uh, uh, to the left. Um, so his victory, uh, or the Conservative Party's victory in 2020, looks all but certain at this point. Though Cameron has said that he's not power-hungry uh, and he will stand down before the 2020 general election and hand over to someone within his own party, which everyone expects to be George Osborne, uh, his chancellor, um, uh, and um, who, is, who is, I think, more effective uh, than Gordon Brown. And if he is the leader of the Conservative Party in 2020, will likely win, particularly if Corbyn is still the leader of the Labour Party. But no, I think I, think, um, I share your um, impression of Cameron. I think... Uh, uh, he is an effective leader. Um, he, he, he's because he is quite uh, moderate and um, because he's a family man and because he he's not obsessed with politics. He's not like Thatcher. He's not political to his fingertips, which is how one of Margaret Thatcher's colleagues described her. Um, his interest in politics um, uh, seems to end below his neck. Um, and he likes to play tennis. He likes to socialize. Um, he's sometimes criticized for what he calls chillaxing a little <laughs> too much. Um, but the fact that he has um, uh, he's kept up with his friends and doesn't live and breathe politics, but has, you know, some hinterland and other interests, I think is probably a good thing and humanizes him and and makes him, um, I think, a more sympathetic figure in the eyes of the British public. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we are listening to Toby Young. And we'll break for a moment to have a word from one of our sponsors. Q&A is brought to you by The Great Courses. I'm a big fan of these courses, and I bet you are too, if you've sampled one. These courses are for anyone who is interested in lifelong learning, which is pretty much everyone. The company offers hundreds of courses on virtually every subject under the sun. They are taught by top experts in their fields. The lectures are either video or audio. Let me recommend a particular course this week. 
Understanding Investments, taught by Connell Fullenkamp, a professor at Duke. He explains the fundamentals of investing to neophytes, but he also has lessons for experienced investors who will broaden and deepen their knowledge. I myself fall into the category of inexperienced investor. I'm the kind who has to get an advisor or invest in mutual funds. I'll never be an investment whiz, but I don't want to be ignorant altogether. I don't want to have to rely entirely on others. I want to know some things for myself, at least a modicum of things. Understanding investments is excellent for me. The Great Courses is now celebrating its 25th anniversary. You can have whatever course you want to take on DVD or CD and by other means as well. You can be as up-to-date technologically as you want. And for a limited time, The Great Courses has a special offer for Q&A listeners. Order from eight of the company's best-selling courses, including Understanding Investments, and get up to 80% off the original price. Let me say that again. Order from eight of the best-selling Great Courses, including the one I've discussed, Understanding Investments, and get up to 80% off. Order today. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash QA. That's thegreatcourses, all strung together, dot com slash forward slash QA for Q&A, of course. I thank you, and I thank The Great Courses for sponsoring this podcast. Welcome back to Q&A. I'm Jay Nordlinger, talking with Toby Young of Britain. Toby, you come from a a labor family. Uh, Your father was a famous academic and politician, ultimately a member of the House of Lords. And yet, uh, you are, are not a laborite, not a socialist. How did that happen? I'm sure it's a longish story, but just briefly, how did you happen to find your own way politically and philosophically? Yeah, well, um, I started out as a punk. Uh, when I was 14, um, uh, uh, the Sex Pistols released their first album, uh, Never Mind the Bollocks. Um, and uh, I was absolutely caught up in that um, sort of moment within popular culture. And uh, uh, I had spiky hair and um, a safety pin through my nose. And um, I styled myself an anarchist. Um, and uh, I regard my present political position as closer to uh, the true spirit of anarchism than anarchists who define themselves on the left, because um, I believe uh, 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 in an ideal world there'd be no need for any kind of state, but uh, I'm prepared to make a small accommodation and allow for uh, a minimal state. Uh, but I don't see that I've made a, a huge journey from um, that original punk position. Um, my father was, wasn't a kind of uh, a Corbynite by any stretch of the imagination. He was on the right of the Labour Party. He started out as a communist and made a journey, uh, but he didn't end up in the Conservative Party. He ended up on the right of the Labour Party. Uh, ah. But he was a, he was a small state um, uh, socialist. Um, oh. I suppose um, uh, he was, he, he, he was uh, quite idealistic and uh, uh, quite egalitarian. And um, I think that I'm much more skeptical uh, by nature um, and uh, regard 
the sort of utopian socialism, which was the sort of wellspring of his political beliefs as kind of hopelessly romantic and unrealistic. Um, uh, Toby, um, I beg your pardon, may I interrupt you? Are, are you? are you sick of hearing and being asked about the term meritocracy? I'm sure it's been brought up to you your entire life, and here I am doing it. Could you yeah, tell well, us about that- it? Yes, well, my my father um, wrote a book in 1957 called The Rise of the Meritocracy, in which he coined the word, um, and um, he 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 invented the word to describe something he regarded as a reprehensible trend. Um, he didn't like uh, uh, equality of opportunity because he thought it lent a patina of respectability to the grotesque inequalities thrown up oh. by capitalism. Um, and uh, 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 and he, he was a, 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 an energetic opponent of grammar schools, um, which are academically selective, taxpayer-funded schools, um, and was an influential disciple of a labor education uh, minister called Tony Crossland, who did more to decimate grammar schools than any of his successors and replace them with comprehensives, which are non-selective uh, secondary schools. Um, and uh, But... Uh, lots of people imagine that um, my father was a champion of meritocracy because they haven't read his book and just assumed that he invented the word. He, he must have approved of it. I've actually just written an essay in which I explore some of these issues and talk about uh, my father's book and whether the various um, uh, uh, prophecies he made about uh, just how dystopian a future meritocratic society would be, whether they've come true or not. And I largely conclude that they have. There's, there's actually an interesting parallel between um, uh, uh, The Bell Curve, um, uh, Charles Murray's uh, book, um, uh, and The Rise of the Meritocracy. The Rise of the Meritocracy is a dystopian satire set in the future in which my father predicts that uh, a meritocratic society will eventually become quite... Uh, uh, stratified along class lines in much the same way as the society it was designed to replace because as meritocratic societies become more mature the meritocratic elite becomes a hereditary elite because those with intelligent genes tend to pass on that intelligence to their children and that of course is 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 one of the uh, claims made in the bell curve and in an essay I've just written, Quadrant, I, I, I assess whether in fact this is happening and I conclude that it is happening. The hereditary elite, the meritocratic elite is becoming a, a hereditary elite and I propose various solutions as to as to how we can deal with this problem and make meritocracy more sustainable. I mean, I, I like meritocracy for precisely the reason my father disapproved of it because I think it does make some of the inequalities that inevitably accompany limited government and the free enterprise system, it makes them more palatable because it, it gives everyone an opportunity uh, to uh, have a shot at making money and being successful. Um, uh, but it does have this disadvantage of, 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 in the long term, creating a degree of class stratification. We see it tailing off of social mobility, so it loses that legitimizing power. So I've suggested in this essay a way it can recapture some of that legitimizing purpose. Uh, Toby, let me talk about education for a moment. I was watching Prime Minister's Questions the other night on YouTube, and I like to see Cameron really tear into them, tear into the left. And he was doing it on the subject of education and so-called free schools. And there is in this, in the Labor Party, this, this sort of pretty fellow named Tristram Hunt. And he, until two seconds ago, was the shadow education secretary. 
And Cameron just lit into him and said, you said that free schools were a vanity project for yummy mummies in West London. He was really impassioned. And no, this is a this is all about giving, uh, giving parents and their children uh, an option, a choice, a brighter future, and so on. You are uh, one of the country's foremost champions of free school. What are free schools, Toby? Are they like our charter schools? Could you give us a, an explanation? Yes, they are like your charter schools. Um, so they are taxpayer-funded, um, but they are uh, not as circumscribed by... Um, uh, local political and bureaucratic control as the standard taxpayer-funded public schools. Um, uh, And um, uh, unlike charter schools, some of which are for profit and some of which aren't, um, all free schools are set up by charitable trusts. Um, And, uh, yeah, I assembled a group of parents and teachers, and in 2010 we became the first group to sign a funding agreement with the Secretary of State for Education, then Michael Gove. Um, And uh, we opened our free school in 2011. Um, And since then, um, my group has opened two more. Uh, Curiously, when Tristram Hunt said that, um, he was actually prompted to say it by being asked a question about the free school that I helped set up. And mm. I think it was actually a reference to my wife. And um, mm-hmm. uh, even though he, he meant it in a pejorative sense, she wasn't actually too irritated to be described <laughs> as the yummy mummy. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Very nice. The, of course, this is a, a big topic, and, and there have been many books on it, uh, not to mention thousands of articles. But the left, broadly speaking, is so dug in to this kind of against this kind of reform, this innovation. It just infuriates. It's really a hill they will die on. They care so much, maybe more than we care in favor. Can you explain why or would it take a shrink? I think it's a a combination of things. I think it's partly that they consider the provision of public education to be properly... uh, their responsibility it falls within uh, it falls on their turf so when uh, reform minded right of center folks like me come along and say actually there's no reason the left should have a monopoly on the provision of public education and we can do uh, an equally good if not better job they get extremely territorial and cross i think there's also a suspicion on their part that um uh, any loosening of state control over taxpayer funded education will inevitably mean that uh the system will then be gained by uh the better off and that the only true guarantor of social justice, and this doesn't just apply to education, it, it applies across the board to public services, at least in the United Kingdom. The only true guarantor of social justice is the state, and that the moment other actors uh, enter, um, uh, uh, the whole system becomes much less yes. social just. Um, I think uh, 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 there's also a sort of general suspicion, I think, that... Um, uh, I suppose the, the, the left regard themselves as sort of custodians of the, That's the com- thing. of the common wheel, That's um, and, the thing. and 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 they 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 think of themselves as sort of um, the purveyors of of wholesome 
civic values, and they they are concerned that if other people um, uh, get involved, people like me, they will use the public education system to disseminate their own poisonous ideology. Um, and, and, uh, and they regard their ideology as, as wholesome, but our ideology as poisonous. And um, uh, uh, in fact, um, you know, uh, uh, we could go on and talk about this for hours, but actually um, uh, there isn't much social justice in Britain's public education system. Generally, the poor don't fare very well, any better than they do in America. And the rich tend to fare much, much better, even in public schools. Um, and um, uh, uh, I think uh, uh, one, one long-term impact of uh, education reform and the creation of free schools, as well as academies, which are very similar to free schools, uh, will be um, uh, much greater social justice, particularly in the form of greater social mobility. Yes, and, and let me point out, I think this is something greatly bothersome to the left. They are supposed to care about children, especially poor children. You and Michael Gove are not supposed to care about that. You're supposed to care about making money and making war while leaving other these, these other things to them. And I think people like you and Gove stand as a kind of moral affront to them because it shows yes. them that they don't have a monopoly. Whoever is right or wrong on education policy, and we're right and they're wrong, but that aside, they're supposed to monopolize caring, and that you care so much, I think, must bother them. Yes, I think that's right. I think, um, uh, I think, I think um, one of the mistakes that people on the left typically make is to imagine that... Um, uh, it's uh, only only those on the left have benign motives, particularly yes. when they get involved yes. in these public policy areas. And anyone on the right getting involved in these areas must have malign motives of some kind or another. And, and they regard uh, all talk of wanting to extend opportunities, wanting to return to um, uh, uh, an educational tradition embodying the transmission of knowledge and the best that's been thought and said, they regard that as a rhetorical smokescreen and think that the real agenda lurking behind this must be uh, wanting to privatize education, mm. to turn over our school estate to robber barons like Rupert Murdoch. And they're constantly searching for evidence of these hidden um, uh, uh, dishonorable uh, motives, uh, and as you say, it's. Um, I, 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 I think Michael Gove, in particular, who um, I think genuinely does care about uh, extending opportunities and wanting to give children from disadvantaged backgrounds the same kind of chance in life that children from affluent backgrounds have. Partly because he came from a very disadvantaged background himself, um, I think. Uh, I think he is a real, has been a real affront. To the left, and he's become a kind of bogeyman, and he's literally, yes. I'm exaggerating, burnt in effigy at uh -huh. sort of left-wing festivals like the Trade Unions Congress, which is going on at the moment, um, and has become a kind of bugbearer, a hate figure. And I, a, I'm, I'm not is, quite. He is a hate great figure. man. Michael Gove is a great man. He is a great man. I mean, I, I wrote a cover story for the Spectator a couple of years ago, um, uh, pointing out that he was, in fact, uh, the great lost leader that the Labour Party. Uh, 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 should have had. Uh, he, he, no one actually has a more compelling uh, 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 way of setting out 
a moral vision than him. Yes. Much, much better, much more convincing, yes. much more stirring than anything Jeremy Corbyn or his fellow left. Joe, but he's one of, the, one of the best people in all of public life in any country. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I am Jay Nordlinger with Toby Young. We will take one more break for another sponsor. Back in a moment. Some of the best conversations happen through email. You know the kind. An engaged reader or potential customer reaches out to share a few thoughts. You write back with a few of your own. Before you know it, you've secured a fan and maybe even some new ideas to share. Those conversations help make your business grow. Of course, your inbox grows with it. Ten emails become a hundred, then five hundred. Before long, you have thousands of messages and no time to sift out the conversations worth having. Does this sound like your inbox? If so, this might be the cure. SaneBox, that's S-A-N-E-B-O-X, SaneBox, does the sifting for you. It diverts the trivial stuff into a separate folder, so all that's left are the emails that matter. With features like one-click unsubscribe and the ability to snooze non-urgent emails, you'll save countless hours and increase your email productivity by 25%. That's more time you can spend engaging your audience. Try it yourself with two free weeks of SaneBox. Visit SaneBox.com slash ricochet to start your trial. No credit card is needed. After that, Ricochet listeners get $25 off a membership, and that's the deepest discount you'll find anywhere. Again, it's SaneBox, S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com slash ricochet. And thanks to SaneBox for sponsoring our podcast. I'm Jay Nordlinger with Q&A. Our guest today is Toby Young, the famous British writer and personality, bon vivant, documentarian, author, television personality, etc. Um, Toby, we have a few more minutes. Let's do some quick ones. Uh, the BBC, if you, were in, if you had a magic wand, would you keep the BBC and reform it, or would you just scrap it and let a hundred media flowers bloom? Yeah, I'm not as hard line as some of my conservative friends about this. Um, I do think there is a role for um, taxpayer funded, a taxpayer funded public broadcaster. But I don't think um, uh, the BBC currently occupies that role. I'm in favor of uh, drastically slimming it down and reducing the flat tax, which is how it's currently paid for. Uh, but I do see some merits in, in a taxpayer-funded uh, public broadcaster uh, committed to um, a sort of uh, benign, educational, enlightened agenda. Toby, I, I think that uh, Boris Johnson is uh, one of the most fascinating animals in the zoo. He is one of the best pro-stylists in journalism, uh, he's been an effective mayor of London on the side. Uh, do you think he belongs in number 10? Would you hand over the keys to Boris comfortably, brilliant as he um, is, talented as he is? Yes, well, the, the, the question everyone asks, always asks about Boris is, um, could he be trusted uh, with his finger on the nuclear button? Um, <laughs> uh, I remember having a conversation at the Conservative Party conference last year with a very 
wise old bird, a veteran political correspondent for one of the tabloids who'd seen a lot of people come and go. And he, he like me, uh, is very impressed by Boris, but he said he, he thought that the problem is if Boris was merely the prime minister, uh, he wouldn't, the, the job wouldn't fully engage all his interest. If, if, <laughs> if he was prime minister in wartime, that would be enough. If, if the fate of the nation <laughs> was in peril, then yes, he, he, he could apply 100% of his candle power to the job. But if, if he was merely prime minister during peacetime, he might get distracted. Um, I think uh, one, of the, one, of the, um, uh, one of the regrets of David Cameron's unexpected victory uh, last May is that it rather put paid to Boris's hopes of succeeding him. Boris's best hope would have been if Cameron had lost and then stepped down as leader and uh, Boris would have then been in pole position to succeed him and then win the next general election after five years of Labour chaos. Um, Boris's best hope now... Excuse me, Toby, I'm interrupting. Sorry, did you say pole position? Yes, he would have been. He would have been um, uh, first in line, I think, to succeed David. Got he would it. have had to have an election, but just a uh, quick translation. Would. Yes. Uh huh. Yes, um, it's a, a, a motor racing term. Um, uh-huh. uh, but uh, I think Boris's best hope now is if he can position himself as the leader of the out campaign in the forthcoming um, in-out EU referendum, in which the yes. British electorate will decide whether to remain. Uh, inside the European Union or get out. And if Boris can position himself as the leader of the out campaign and the out campaign then goes on to win, and curiously, Jeremy Corbyn's victory makes that marginally more likely because he's very sceptical about the EU, mm. one of his, uh, one, of his uh, one of the few silver linings. Yeah. Um, uh, if Boris can pull that off, I think because Cameron looks likely to campaign for an in vote, he would probably have to resign if the British public votes to get out and then Boris could uh, uh, perhaps take over. But that seems like a bit of a long shot now. The smart money is on George Osborne to succeed David Cameron, be our next prime minister, not Boris Johnson, which is rather um, a shame because Boris would be a very colourful uh, prime oh, minister. Uh, the best, certainly the best prose stylist in number 10 Downing Street since Churchill. And it would be particularly galling for me if it doesn't happen because I have a £15,000 bet with the TV chef Nigella Lawson that Boris will be the next leader of the Conservative Party, or rather the leader of the Conservative Party, by the end of 2017. And it now looks as though I'm going to lose that bet, and I'm just hoping she won't collect. You'll you'll have to scribble extra hard and earn more money. Uh, Toby Young, do do you have a favorite candidate among the Republicans now running for the presidential nomination? Have you cast an eye on this? I know you have your hands full with your own country. Yeah, I've I, I've um, uh, been watching the I, I watched uh, I watched the first of the uh, Republican presidential debates, um, uh, and um, you know I, I I suppose my view is anyone but Trump, um, even mm. Jeb Bush I think would be preferable to Trump, um, and uh, uh, Trump is the Jeremy Corbyn I think of the Republican Party and would be an unqualified disaster. <laughs> Um, uh, so, um, I'd be happy. I'd be happy with Jeb Bush. Toby, people used to make fun of London for food, for eating, and then it became one of the great eating cities in all the world. Uh, in your view, is London the best eating city in the world or would you give the nod to Paris or some other place? Well, I think, uh, 
I've spent uh, five years in America, and as you said at the beginning, uh, I, I was a judge for two seasons on Top Chef, and I've eaten pretty widely in America as well as eaten widely over here, particularly as a, as a restaurant critic. Um, uh, and I haven't eaten as widely in Europe. I've eaten uh, a, f- a fair amount in France. Um, I think that uh, the the difference between food in America and food in Britain is that the worst American food isn't nearly as bad as the worst British food. The worst mm-hmm. British food is still amongst, I think, the worst food in the world. Um, mm-hmm. I think the average American food, that kind of middle market um, uh, American food, like the Cheesecake Factory, that's generally uh-huh. done much much better than we do it. Um, there's no equivalent. Um, so so hang on. Let me, let me narrow this down. You don't, yeah. you, don't, you don't mean, for example, uh, Applebee's or Denny's? Or the Olive Garden is the Cheesecake Factory a cut above those things, or those places I've mentioned are they in the same category? I think I think I think those I think there is no equivalent of those either um, uh, in, in in Britain. Um, oh. uh, but I do think the Cheesecake Factory is a cut above. But I think the very best I think the very best in Britain is is better than the very best mm. in 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 America. Um, and I think you know it 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 it's uh, uh, it's partly I think because we have a class system and. Insofar as you do have one, it's not quite as pronounced or as um, explicit as ours. And so there's less range. Uh, we have a far greater range uh, from, the, from the bottom to the top, I think, in terms of quality than you do. And I think that, 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 that captures one of the key differences between Britain and America. Toby, it, it used to be said, it was said when I was a kid, that the two best eating cities in America were San Francisco and New Orleans. I don't know if that would be true in this decade. Do you have a view of that? Well, one of, one of, the, one of the most enjoyable experiences of my life, actually, was, was being um, a, a judge in season two of Top Chef, which was uh, filmed in Las Vegas. And that mm. meant I, was, I spent a month in Vegas, um, holed up in a casino in a suite. Uh, my family joined me for the second two weeks. Um, but, um, you know, I was taught how to play craps by Tom Caligio. Um, uh, and, uh, we hung out with a succession of celebrity chefs who were guest judges on the show. Um, and most of whom had branches of their restaurant sort of empires in Las Vegas. And, uh, we would go out with them after, filming the show on a kind of trawl of all the kind of uh, swankiest restaurants in Vegas. And sometimes it would kind of uh, extend into the back streets in search of kind of, you know, great, a great tofu place someone had heard about. And I had a sort of uh, amazing introduction, best you could possibly hope for, to the finest dining in Las Vegas during that month. And that has convinced me. Uh, <laughs> is, 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 is America's premier city when it comes to fine dining. One more minute. Uh, I've written a lot, maybe you've written a lot, about political appellations, uh, what one calls oneself. I I often said that the best thing Ronald Reagan ever did for me was give me something to call myself. I am a Reaganite, because we're always looking for terms. And of course, terms mean the same terms mean different things in different societies. The word liberal, for example. And I was writing recently, as so many of us have been, about Bob Conquest, the historian who died last month, and I talked to him about this. He said he could be described as a Burkean conservative. He said, I'm reading now, I'm an anti-extremist. I'm for a law and liberty culture. Those are Orwell's words, law and liberty. And when it, he went on to say some other things. I noticed on your Twitter account, I was looking at it today, that you describe yourself as a classical liberal. 
And I'm, is that your, your, your favorite designation for yourself politically? And are there alternatives? Let's just end on this note, because it's always been uh, not just a subject or an interest. It's been sort of a problem of mine what to call oneself and call others fairly, since these terms can be so slippery, so shifty. Yes. Well, when I was a 14-year-old punk rocker, I used to describe myself as an anarcho-cynicalist, hmm. um, uh, which was a uh, play on anarcho-syndicalist. Um, hmm. And um, uh, But um, uh, I think particularly since getting involved in uh, public education, I've become less cynical about the role of the state. I think the state can play a role as a, a kind of midwife to uh, voluntary groups like the one I led and still lead, um, uh, which can be quite helpful. Um, and uh, so I think I've, I've made that journey and I now consider myself a classical liberal, uh, which means I see, I, I can envisage um, a, a limited role for the state, but uh, certainly the state should be circumscribed by law and uh, extremely limited uh, in what it, what it is able to do. Um, uh, I've described myself as a maverick Tory in the past, uh, and mm. as uh, 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 I went through a phase of, I guess, uh, describing myself as a libertarian. Um, but I think, uh, I think classical liberal probably uh, captures most accurately how I see myself now. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Toby Young is a delight to read. When you agree, he's a delight. When you disagree, he's a delight, and on all sorts of subjects. And uh, thank you for being our guest today, Toby, and uh, strength to your hands. Thank you, Jay. Thanks a lot. I'm Jay Nordlinger for Q&A. See you next time. Ricochet. Join the conversation.